Chapter Two of A Thousand Degrees Below Zero by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two. New York was frightened, and the newspapers, as they appeared, did not allay that fear. The conservative tribunal ran a scarehead. Has the glacial age come again? and printed underneath a resume of the phenomena up to the time of going to press which did not include the appearance of the black flyer with an interview from a prominent scientist an enterprising reporter had routed the worthy gentleman out of bed and rushed him to the scene of the expanding ice cake in a fast motorboat taking down in shorthand his comments on the matter the scientist had been much puzzled but spoke at length nevertheless he said in part has the glacial age come again i do not know i can only say that we have no certain knowledge of the original cause of the glacial period and we cannot say definitely that it did not begin in precisely this fashion we have volcanoes which radiate incredible quantities of heat to the country surrounding them no phenomenon like this has occurred before but it may be that some unknown cause may bring to the surface a condition the antithesis of a volcano which instead of radiating heat will bring on local glacier-like conditions one might go farther and suggest that the earth may alternate between periods of volcanic activity during which it is warm and conditions are favorable for habitation and growth and periods of this new anti-volcanic activity during which frigidity is normal and mankind may be forced to take refuge in the tropic zones still i cannot say definitely the eminent scientist went on for two full columns during which he refused to say anything definite but suggested so many alarming possibilities that everyone who read the tribunal was thrown into a state of mind not far from panic he offered no explanation of the plume of steam when the appearance of the black flyer became known to the newspaper officers city editors threw up their hands the less conservative printed the wildest explanations they put forth a virulent organism theory which it must be admitted was no farther from the truth than most of the others the story began with an interview with the boatswain in charge of the boat crew from the destroyer. We were ordered to take the men off the ice and to take especial care not to be nipped ourselves. We rowed carefully toward the edge of the ice cake with the light of the searchlights to guide us. We would see where the flow began when the wave dropped back from it. I've been in northern seas, but I never saw anything like that. The edge of the ice wasn't smooth and worn away by the waves. It was rough with frost crystals that reached out like fingers, grabbing at the things nearby. When we came close to the edge, some of the men in my boat were scared, and I don't blame them. I dipped my hand overboard, and the water was warm. And twenty feet away, there was that mass of ice. We backed up to the ice cake and took off the men, I was looking over the side of the lifeboat and saw those long crystals forming and growing while I watched. They were huge, from two feet long for the largest to three or four inches for the smallest. They reached out and reached out terribly. The stern of the boat was touching the ice, and I saw them reaching for the hull like the tentacles of an octopus. 
They fastened on and began to grow thicker. We took oars and smashed them, feeling frightened as one is frightened in a nightmare. As fast as we broke them, they formed again, and the men on the ice seemed to be rotten slow getting into the boat, though, though I don't doubt they were hurrying all they knew how. When they were all aboard, we had to work like mad to get clear. The paper went on to expound its own idea of what had happened. The sinister growth of the ice crystals is significant. There has always been notice of and comment upon the striking similarity between the growth of crystals and the growth of plants. Until now, all scientific textbooks have said that crystals could only grow in a supersaturate solution of their own substance and claim that they were not organic growths, in the sense of growths caused by an intelligence within the crystal. Is it not possible that the scientists have been wrong? Is it not possible that crystals are growths in the same way that plants are growths? Granting that, what is to keep a scientist from isolating and cultivating the crystal embryo? We have done that with germs and with the life germs in eggs and plants. We can even use a process of parthenogenesis and create monsters from the unfertilized eggs of frogs and sea urchins. Why could not this scientist experiment until the life germ of the ice crystal could be developed and enlarged? Why could not this development continue until the germ could not only create its crystals under the most favorable conditions of temperature, but at the normal temperature of water? At the Harvard laboratories, water has been kept liquid far below its normal freezing point, and under tremendous pressure has been found to remain ice at temperatures of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Can we doubt that this appearance of ice at this extraordinary season is due to the malicious activities of a foreign government, envious of our magnificent merchant marine and commerce? The explanation was ingenious, but though the scientific facts quoted were quite correct, the inference was hardly justifiable. Water can and does reach a temperature several degrees below 32 degrees Fahrenheit without solidifying, as may be proved by putting a glass of water in a cold room in winter. But the slightest jar causes the instantaneous formation of ice crystals, and in a little while the whole mass is solid. The fact of hot ice must also be admitted, but it requires a pressure of rather more than 50 tons to the square inch, and is rarely attempted. The paper also was forced to admit as inexplicable the plume of steam which rose from a thousand to fifteen hundred feet into the air. In any event, the claim that a certain unfriendly foreign government was trying to ruin the commerce of the United States was effectively squashed by cablegrams from Gibraltar, Folkestone, and Yokohama. Three great icebergs had formed in the Straits of Gibraltar and extended until they joined when a solid mass of ice made a bridge that once more rejoined the continents of Africa and Europe from Ceuta to the rock. The plumes of steam were visible there too. Three mighty columns of white mist rose at equal distances across the gap. Folkestone Harbor was a mass of ice. A great transatlantic liner had been caught in the expanding berg, and the huge hull had been crushed, like so much cardboard. 
The passengers and crew had escaped across the ice. The great steam plume made a wonderful sight from miles around. Yokohama was similarly visited. Three battleships of the Japanese fleet were frozen in and their hulls cracked and broken. The plume of steam, nearly two thousand feet high, had aroused the latent superstition of the Japanese and was being exercised in every Shinto temple in the kingdom. The panic which was engendered by the mysteries of the icebergs and the unknown motives of the men so obviously responsible for their appearance grew in intensity. New York was in a blue funk. The police felt a tremor that means that at any moment the crowds thronging the streets might break and from sheer panic become uncontrollable. Every patrolman wore a worried frown and worked like mad to keep the crowds moving, moving always. The strain was becoming greater, however, and troops were being hastily moved into the city when an announcement was made by the British Foreign Office. It has been decided to make public a communication received at the Foreign Office bearing on the blocking of Folkestone Harbor, the Straits of Gibraltar, Yokohama, and New York. The communication is dated from the dictatorial residence and reads as follows. To the Premier of Great Britain, you are informed that the blocking of Folkestone Harbor, as well as that of the Straits of Gibraltar, New York, and Yokohama, is evidence of my intention and power to assume control of the governments of the world as dictator. Present administrations and systems of government will continue in power under my direction and subject to my commands. The machinery of the League of Nations is to be used to enforce my decrees. You will readily understand that the same means I used to block the harbors and straits now frozen over can be extended indefinitely. Rivers can be made to cease to flow lakes to irrigate, and all commerce and agriculture forced to suspend its activity. This will be done, if it is made necessary, by the refusal of the governments of the world to accede to my demands, given under my hand at the dictatorial residence. Signed, Vladislaw Varus. The Foreign Office offers this communication to allay the fears of the public that a new glacial period may be imminent, but at the same time it wishes to assure the British people that the demands of the writer are not taken seriously. It is evident that the maker of such absurd demands is insane, and though he may be able to cause perhaps serious inconvenience to commerce, a means of nullifying his invention will be forthcoming in a short while. British scientists are studying the Folkestone phenomena and are confident of a prompt solution to the problem. Though it might have been expected that such an announcement as that of the intention of an unknown and probably insane man to make himself ruler of the world would have caused even greater panic, the reverse was actually the case. The motive behind the creation of the icebergs was made so clear that the world settled back with a sort of sporting interest to see what would happen. It had not long to wait. 
a hint came by some underground channel that professor hawkins had offered a suggestion to the american government that had been accepted as a basis for experiment a reporter went post haste to the professor's home he was admitted but the professor would not see him at the moment the reporter sat down patiently to wait a motor car drove up to the house and a man in soldier's uniform stepped out the reporter gave a whistle a second car discharged a quietly dressed man in civilian clothes attended by two other army officers the reporter stared he recognized the men most men on two continents would have recognized them they passed through the house to the professor's laboratory at the rear a long time passed the reporter fidgeted nervously some conference of colossal importance was taking place back there in the laboratory it was an hour later that the visitors left with them went a young man the reporter had not seen before the professor came slowly into the room and smiled apologetically i am very sorry to have kept you waiting but it was necessary i think that in about two hours i will have some news for you in the meantime there is nothing more to say can you tell us what really happened how did this varus make the berg it's the simplest thing in the world said the professor with a smile i've managed to duplicate it on a small scale back in my laboratory suppose you come back there and i'll show you a girl appeared in the doorway with a worried frown on her face father has teddy gone yes we'll hear in about two hours the professor turned to the reporter with instinctive courtesy this is my daughter evelyn the girl shook hands you want to know about the iceberg too teddy has gone to break it up now to try to break it up corrected the professor with a smile uh, teddy is my assistant but how insisted the reporter you seem to be so confident and everyone else does nothing but guess i'll show you quite clearly the professor said gently if you'll come back to the laboratory they moved toward the rear of the house a hullabaloo of whistles broke out in the harbor the girl turned toward the professor teddy already the professor frowned he hasn't had time he went to a window and looked out inspecting the sky keenly a slender black splinter hung suspended in the air the professor flung open the window and a musical humming filled the room as they watched a smoking object detached itself from the black flyer and fell downward that must be varus said the professor a winged flyer with the insignia of the american aviation corps painted on the undersurface of its wings darted into their field of vision black smoke trailed behind it as it shot toward the sinister black craft there was an instant's pause and then little puffs of white mist appeared before the propeller of the aeroplane he's firing his machine gun said the reporter excitedly as he spoke the black flyer dropped like a stone and the american plane shot above it almost instantly the black flyer checked in mid-air and rose vertically with amazing speed 
The American plane dove on for a second, and then wavered. It began to climb, stalled, and dropped towards the earth in a series of side slips and maple leaf turns. It came down erratically, crazily. Killed, said the professor with compressed lips. His daughter uttered a cry. And Varus is getting away. The black flyer had become but the merest speck. It had attained an almost unbelievable height. Now it deliberately swung around and headed off toward the northeast with its same incredible speed. End of chapter 2